welcome back to another episode of Heart to Health Talk, where we discuss health issues concerning youth in Singapore. I am Tisit, and I'll be your host for our second series on adulting. In the past few episodes, we talked about all kinds of adulting trouble, from the stresses of finding a job, managing our vices, and working to minimize sedentary behavior and bad posture. Today, we look into the workplace environment and consider the individual experience of it. In the process of growing up, the workplace seems like a daunting barrier that belongs to our parents, older relatives, basically a place where only adults exist. And whenever my parents would go in the morning, they would say, okay, I'm off to the office. And as a child, there was this sense that the workplace was a mythical space where people were professional, capable, maybe even invincible. But the thing is, they're not. Yes, you're an employee, there to get things done. But before that, you're also a person who's prone to the physical, mental, and emotional fluctuations of life. And I can't help but to think that the workplace, where many Singaporeans spend more than half their working day at, should be a hospitable place for people to live in. Then again, I'm hardly the person to go to to ask about it. And you won't have to, because today we have with us someone who many of you likely have heard of. Ms. Anthea Ong. Ms. Anthea Ong was a former nominated member of parliament, championing for the three M's of a heart, mental health, marginalised communities, including migrant workers, and Mother Earth. She's also the founder of numerous ground-up initiatives and impact businesses, including the Work Well Leaders Work Group to support and promote workplace mental well-being as a leadership priority through cross-sector collaboration and sharing of best practices. Hi there, Anthea. Thanks so much for coming down to have this conversation with us. It's such an honour. Hi, Dixing. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Great. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I look forward to our chat. Sure. I noticed that you started the Work Well Leaders Work Group. What were some motivations behind it and what do you hope to achieve with that? That one is very clear. So that one, that few, let me see if I can start with three. So I think the first one very clearly was by then. I had a personal collapse on myself 15 years ago and I was actually at the height of my professional career. I was a CEO and founder of a technology company. With that collapse, I think what I found was that there was so much shame that I felt. There was so much embarrassment I felt of that collapse. It led to a broken marriage, which unfortunately led to also a broken business that left me with only $16 at one time. I think that night when I found out I only had $16 when I was at the ATM, I was so awash really with despair. But I think there was so much shame and embarrassment that I was going on a little bit of that downward spiral into a deep dark hole. That was really quite a revelation because if you think about it, I had a very successful professional career and how is it that I could still feel that way was what I asked myself. I think it came from obviously the stigma that I didn't know then that was called stigma, but immediately like, why am I feeling this way? And how am I feeling this way? The shame of losing all of the title and all of the money. I will just share very openly. The despair was so tense that I even ideated suicide at one point. I definitely thought about the distance between the, the windows of my 18th floor apartment and the ground. And I think what saved me was how I thankfully thought of what I still have. What I had lost, what I didn't have was what got me into a downward spiral. But thankfully, in that very long silence, I had about four hours lying on the floor. I thought about what I still have. And I realized what I still had then, I still have now, was a very strong family and social support structure. And I also had a lot of inner resources. That really helped me come out of it. I think everyone deserves that, but not everybody has that. 
from that experience, it really showed me a few things. One was just the stigma, how strong the stigma is. It wasn't just a social stigma, but the self-stigma. The reason why I felt so much shame was the self-stigma. Because it's such a cultural thing, I felt like everyone works for some office. We spend so much time at work. How is it that workplace doesn't help us get rid of the stigma? And then I realized it's because leaders shape the cultures. Leaders have such a role in shaping the culture of an organization. That's why I wanted to focus on leaders. Up to that point, many organizations saw mental health as an HR function, but HR programs don't change the culture. It's leaders who would change the culture. The other reason was, to be perfectly honest, I was very lucky to be at a stage where many of my contemporaries, unlike me, did not go on to different things to try out. They stayed in the field and many of them have become C-suite leaders. So it was an opportunity for me to guilt trip them <laughs> and say that, look, you're very successful, just like I had been. Let's do something. So we came together and we formed the Work Well Leaders Work Group. I think the third reason was really to see if we can challenge the narrative that workplace is a source of anxiety and mental ills to one that is the positive source of well-being. Something like this is such a paradigm shift because we will need to get leaders on board. Yes, certainly. You seem to have went through a really hard time. That must have been really tough on you. I'm so awed and amazed at the achievements that you have come to today. You mentioned this idea of stigma. I think that's something that a lot of people empathize with, even though they don't necessarily identify it. For example, when you're physically unwell, or sometimes maybe you're having a bout of depression for some people, then you want to take a sick leave. But I feel like there's this stigma. And it's not only just coming from your employers going, oh, you know, you shouldn't be taking this sick leave. It's just a mental problem. You also internalize the stigma and go like, I mean, it's just a small problem. I don't need to take leave. So what's your opinion on this idea of taking sick leave? That's a really important question and a, and a really important point that you just made. I think maybe first and foremost, it's important for all of us. And I hope that the more we talk about it, the more we become aware and we can check ourselves. And I like how you have talked about already two levels. That the stigma that we are all very aware of is the social stigma. Or sometimes we call it taboo. This is relating to social norms. And social norms can be good, social norms can be not so good. And in this case, when social norms become not so good, it becomes a stigma. So there's a social stigma that I think we all kind of understand what that is. And you're absolutely spot on when the social stigma becomes so pervasive and omnipresent and ubiquitous. What happens is that we assume this social stigma and make it a self-stigma. So it's no longer how society judges you, you also judge yourself, which is what I did for sure. When I had that colossal collapse, I definitely self-stigmatized and hence the shame, hence the despair and all of that. So the self-stigma and social stigma, you may not necessarily know where one starts and where the other ends. There's a lot of playing off each other. If everyone around you reinforces it, then it becomes part of you. Then you also reinforce it with everyone around you. So that's social stigma and self-stigma. The third level of stigma is one that I want to share. And I think the topic that you want us to talk about, that level of stigma is structural stigma. And structural stigma comes from the lights of institutional policy, obviously government policy. When I say institutional policies, that includes workplace, that includes schools, anywhere where there is an institutional environment that provides a structure that could have the stigma associated with it, that again entrenches the social stigma. So there's a societal structure, which very often in a place like Singapore also comes from government policies. So that contributes to structural stigma. And I can share some examples later if you want. 
So I think it's three levels of stigma all come together to make it really difficult when we come to taking sick leave. We already given some examples about how sick leave in general seem to be saying that you are not well. And in certain environments, whether it's at school or at work, and sometimes even at home, you may also have a certain narrative at home about sick leave that your parents, elderly folks tend to associate sick leave with. So over time, we see sick leave as, oh, you're weak. Some of the NS boys love to use this term, you're choking, and you're trying to get off. So there's a lot of different narratives that have come with sick leave. Even just talking about physical sick leave, so that's already one level. Already there's so many different narratives on it. Then when it comes to not feeling well emotionally and mentally, wow, then you are dealing with a whole new level of associations. Let's start with associations first. It's like, are you sure? Are you being so festive? Maybe going to work will make you feel better. All those narratives will also come in. What are you going to do? Stay at home and more? Go to work lives. Maybe even going to help you deal with it. So all these things come. So over time, I think it makes you feel like taking sick leave when you're not feeling well, especially when it's not a physical condition that you have. It makes you feel like you're weak. Uh, it makes you feel guilty because you are worried that you'll be judged. But never mind that you'll be judged to be weak, but you'll also be judged to try to skype or that you are trying to shirk responsibility. So all these associations with it, I think, made it really difficult for us to take sick leave. But we need to, because right now at the policy level, in this case, the Employment Act that we have where it comes to sick leave does not differentiate between whether you take sick leave for a physical condition or a mental health condition as long as it is deemed necessary by a registered medical doctor. And of course, that's at the legislative level. There are many companies that the ones that I am involved with, they don't expect you to have MC. If you're not well, then just say you're not well and stay at home. You can take time to see a doctor, if not just rest. But the stigma, the narratives around sick leave, both at the physical condition level and the mental health condition level, makes it really hard. Both the managers of the person wanting to take sick leave, but I think for the person who needs to take the sick leave to take the sick leave, it's your entitlement. I wish more people understood this. I feel that, as you mentioned, the HR policies in the company will affect how people deem whether it's okay to take sick leave or not. Because I think for a lot of HR policies, you require a medical certificate because that is what the law states. You need to be certified as medically not well. But I feel like even that level of validity makes it a barrier for people to say that, hey, I'm not feeling well. Correct. That's a very good point and we should explore this a bit further. I think the law needs to exist as a minimum requirement so that there's no abuse and so that the minimum level of standards are being attained. I would say that that's a minimum level of requirement that you must give sick leave to your employees. And the recommended requirement is that if you don't know how to know whether the employee is not well, is sick, then you could do it through a medical certificate. But if you read the law, it's very clear that that's just what is recommended and what is proposed as a minimum requirement. But, and I'm, I'm going to say this very big but, employers can certainly go above and beyond this level. So meaning that in terms of the policies that are put forth by the HR department and therefore the leaders endorsing them, you can say, okay, I'm going to follow to the letter of the law. That's one way. And many people do that. But there are also many, many employers that go above and beyond the letter of the law to say that, okay, you don't have to give me an MC. If you want to see the doctors within the companies of doctors, then that's fine. I know that you are taking care of yourself and you see a doctor. If the doctor doesn't give you an MC, whatever, but you still don't feel well, that's fine. And there's another level where I don't need you to give me an MC. I trust you. I don't even need you to see a doctor because I trust that you know when you should see a doctor and when you should not and when you need rest. 
So those are the options that are available to all employers and leaders. I would encourage, which is why the work with work well leaders is so important. I'm not saying that don't have some guidelines and don't have some frameworks. You can use that as guidelines, but also give a certain amount of autonomy and flexibility to your team managers or to your supervisors to let them know that if their team members just need a day off after working really hard for two weeks, even through the weekend to rush a project, then let that be just something that the team managers and supervisors have the autonomy to give. I mean, you're not saying that they are month off. So I think those are what we say help to shape the culture. You have those guidelines, you have those minimum requirements and minimum standards. But I think that's what we mean by trying to change the culture of an organization so that it makes for a safer place for people to want to come forward to take when they need. Yeah, I can certainly see how when policies are based on this idea of trust, then people who enact these policies or who practice these policies will also be operating in a culture of implicit trust. I think that would be really nice because oftentimes people don't even take leave just because they're sick. I think that people are not just workers, they are family members too and they have to take childcare leave or family care leave and don't really know how to explain it to your employer that, hi, I'm taking leave not because I'm sick but because I need to care for my mom who's falling sick nowadays. Yeah, and I think it doesn't have to be something that you necessarily say across an organization, especially if it's a large organization. You don't have to say that, okay, from now on, ABC company will allow you guys to take leave as and when you want. We all understand there's some level of structure that's still needed within an organization. So you don't have to do that, but you can work with the leaders, the team managers, the supervisors, all along the line, the, the whole packing order to say that, look, yes, those are the guidelines, but if we want to build a trust-based culture, if we want to build an inclusive culture, and if we want to see employees as whole persons, as humans, then we can't say that if there's something going on in your family and we don't want to support them, then that's not an inclusive workplace culture that's going to be supported of their employees' performance. And so I think giving them some flexibility and making it very clear that as managers, as leaders, you have that flexibility because you know your team members well. I cannot go and do a across-the-board kind of a policy change, but I can certainly trust you as manager. So if the manager feels trusted by the leaders or the organization, then they're going to also build a trust-based culture amongst the team. And the team might be very small, but it's, hey, you start from there. And then if every manager is trying to build a trust-based culture within their teams, then slowly it becomes the organizational culture too. Yeah, that definitely makes sense because I think that if a company invests in their human resources and treat them as, as humans and nurture them, it also makes people want to really contribute to the company. Maybe they might even be working more efficiently. Yes, I don't think that in the knowledge economy and the future economy that we are all heading towards, I don't think we can see employees as resources. So I would urge now, as I do with all my talks and when I speak to leaders, I would say that in the past, we may have seen human resources as more resources. We tend to focus on the R of HR, but we really need to now truly focus on the H of HR. We really need to focus on the human of human resources. If we look at our employees as resources, instead of humans, then we're never going to be able to sort of see them as whole persons. If we don't see them as whole persons, no matter how wonderful you may be as a manager or you may think the workplace have the coolest pantry and you have all these game boards and the staff room, you are not then realizing that what happens to an employee outside of work 
will obviously affect the employee, particularly in their mental well-being when they come to work. Because you don't say that my mom is not really well. When I come to work, I don't think about my mom. Of course you can't, what? I mean, you are human. And it's the same thing where if you are a caregiver, say to a child with special needs, for example, if you don't feel like you are being supported, whether at the societal level or in the family, to be able to sort of support your child, then when you come to work, I mean, you don't just switch off. And so increasingly, we are seeing very progressive employers and I'm doing a plug for, for them. The likes of PwC, the likes of BP, they are now going above and beyond even in terms of mental well-being programs. They are no longer looking at, oh, we're just going to teach you how to cope with work stress and all of that. Because they realize work stress is not isolated as just work stress. It could be a projection of personal family stress and life stress gets more exacerbated because of work demands. And so the progressive employers are even looking to support employees in being better able to cope with other aspects of their life. For example, some of these employers are putting together caregiving programs to support employees who are caregivers to learn new skills, to know how to better cope as a caregiver. And this will say, hey, but there's nothing to do with your work, ma. But progressive employers would say that this is needed. I wanted to bring us back to the point where you mentioned something about people who work over the weekend sometimes. Among some of my friends who have just graduated or some of my older cousins, they have this idea and they will tell me that in your first few years, it's really normal for junior employees to work overtime. I'm just wondering, is this OT culture certainly necessary? Because sometimes it can be really damaging, not only in terms of physical health, but also in terms of mental health. Yeah. And your relationship health, I may add. I personally think that this is quite a modern ill of our times. I remember very clearly a period of my life whenever I asked anyone how I do, everyone would say very busy. And it's funny because I was asking about how they feel. There's some sense of worth that we attach to being able to reply that we're busy. It's quite deeply cultural and structural in the sense that we feel that unless we say we're busy, unless we say we have to work over the weekend, unless we say we have to work long and I'm not discounting that there may be the demands from bosses and the demands of work. But I do think that as a society, and this is not just Singapore, I think across the world, we have almost come to a point in the human evolution that unless we can identify and define ourselves as super economically productive, we don't necessarily feel like we have that self-worth. But in another way, it's almost as if our economic productivity is equivalent to our social value. I don't think it's abstract. I think we all to understand that there's something bigger and larger here that is at play. So to your point, especially for young working adults, very often, I remember when I first joined the workforce as a young banker, first of all, I was very excited. It was very interesting. I definitely felt like I wanted to get as quickly as I can to a level of competence and knowledge. So I was definitely pulling the night hours and the weekends. And I must say in the beginning, I really enjoyed it because I was learning so much. It was so different from studying. It then gets positively reinforced because I was praised. I was commended. Wow, I think it was so hard. I thought you really know this client really well because I was really reading the client's file from start to end. And so that positive reinforcement <laughs> makes you think, oh, I'm doing the right thing. So you chong more. You just say, oh, yeah, correct lah. As a young working adult, well, you just kind of say, okay, that's a positive reinforcement. It means I'm doing right. So I do more of what I'm doing right. And still, I think over time, you keep doing that, especially with young people and having young ones. When the body can take so much, you don't think a lot about it because you can still chong. And I used to do this and plus I also really party hard. So I could work really late. And then when the office really has to close already because the security guard needs to kick me out, 
I still go and party, you know, I meet up with friends and go and party. And next day, still come back at nine. And those were really super heady days. But at some point, you realize that the law of diminishing returns does set in. I guess we were less aware of what are our rights. Don't even think that actually you sign an employment agreement ma, that says your working hours are this and this. I would say, please don't see it just from a rights-based approach, nor do you see it as this should be the way it should be. I think come back to yourself. If you have a good team manager and a good team you work with and the nature of your work needs you to chong, then hopefully you have a team manager that says, hey guys, we really got to chong because we have a deadline, the runway is short. But after after that, we'll all take two days off or something like that. And no leave taken off your annual leave because you've worked through the weekends. If there's that kind of negotiation and the kind of understanding and the team manager does hold himself to his words, then I think it's okay. So I don't think it's so clear-cut to say, let's have a right to disconnect by 9 o'clock or by 6 o'clock or no weekends. I think in an ideal world, it'd be awesome, but it would be too easy to say this because there are certain industries, if you are actually in an events business, many of the events take place during the weekend. So you cannot go to sit with your boss that says, hey, I don't want to work weekend. But Lions event is in the weekend. I would caution against kind of a sweeping statement. But I think very important that there must be rest time, that you must listen to your body. You must clearly be able to sort of set your boundaries. But also hopefully you have a trust-based environment with your team managers and your colleagues that you care. When you are feeling really overworked or you are feeling overwhelmed, don't wait until you're burned out. When it's intense, I think it's very important to, to raise it and negotiate it. Yeah. I fully agree with you on the first part where you mentioned something about sometimes it feels that they're wearing this busy status as a badge of honour. Yeah, and I think that this idea of young employees must do more OT. Perhaps it stems from this idea of young employees when they first enter the workforce, they don't really know what's their worth. Because even as an undergraduate going for internships, I'm really not sure, am I really contributing enough? Because you hope to be a functioning member of society and sometimes the project or the work you're doing is also really interesting and you want to be invested in it. But there's also this idea that you are not just your work. So while you are employee trying to work clean you should also know that when your body cannot take it or when you need some time off you should say that and try to communicate this yeah i think that's really important that you said if you really like your work and it's so super interesting and maybe you you would have a little bit of the invisibility of the awareness and make sure that you have good friends around you or family members who at least give you that a little bit of an alert or reminder because we all thrive on adrenaline and all of us especially when it's doing things that's exciting it's impactful it's meaningful we keep going and sometimes we can get blinded by how this is making you feel that you forget to think about your physical body needs and your mental needs so it's good also to have friends and family members to just give you a little bit of the alert on that point that you mentioned about the busy it's a badge of honor I will share a little secret. When people ask me how I'm doing or how are you, I either say I'm very happy, I'm very well, or I'm feeling a little bit stressed out. So I make myself very intentional to say that even if it's from because I'm feeling intense or I wasn't feeling too well because there was so much to do, I have deliberately avoided the use of busy because I feel that saying the word busy just, I think, exacerbates this notion that our self-worth comes from being busy. And I'm really very determined to challenge that. I think it has a little bit of a psychological impact on us when we say busy. I feel like the word busy is associated with so much of overwhelmingness. 
and using it call up certain hormones in me. So I don't. And I even have done social experiments where someone would ask me, how are you doing? And I would say, I'm not doing anything. Just <laughs> to see how people react. Because I think people just like to see that. Okay, la, it's a little bit cheeky. But why not? Yo, why are we taking ourselves so seriously, right? Go and experiment. It also allows us to be self-aware. We do a bit of a checking with ourselves. So instead of just rolling off your tongue automatically or mechanically, instead of staying busy, try something else. And then see whether that also helps to recalibrate your emotions and your moods a little bit. Yeah, I think instead of saying busy, if we look into ourselves and look at our emotions, it could also be a chance for us to really have a self-check of, okay, where am I at right now? And if you talk about your feelings, I feel like perhaps it could facilitate a more meaningful conversation with the person that you're having a conversation with. Absolutely. Those who know me know that every time I'm about to stay busy, I replace it with this word that I've coined myself. It's called love pack. I will always say that I've been so love packed the last week. And I really do want to make sure that what I do, I'm doing out of love. Love, I'm not talking about romantic love. Love for what I believe in, love for my cause, love for my purpose, love for the work that I do. So love pack meaning that everything that I'm doing, yes, of course, there is a level of intensity, but I want to say love pack. So when I'm Really, really overwhelmed. I use the word love soaked. From pack to soak everywhere already, ma, like soaked already, completely soaked through already. <laughs> and I think that's really important for us to use some way of cueing yourself. And you realize that when you use some of these words, it actually helps to start to shift your emotions a little bit. And then, like you said, I totally agree. They were like, what do you mean by love pack? So it starts a different conversation. And generally having a chat. Thanks for this idea of what we can do as individuals. I'm wondering about the help-seeking behaviours that we can take. One of the common HR policies that I understand is that sometimes they have internal counsellors in the company. I also understand that some people are afraid to approach these internal counsellors because there's this concern that turning to internal counsellors, they'll lead to higher management and report back. And then as an employee who went to seek help, then you might get in trouble. So what are the different personal costs between going to an internal counsellor or an external one? And what are the resources available? Hmm. You have actually touched on something that we've been trying to work on even within the WorkWell leaders as a community of CEOs and C-suite leaders. There's this thing that is called Employee Assistance Program and you will hear a lot about it, especially if you join the larger employers. EAP, if you look at it, it comprises a huge amount of things. Counseling is in most large organizations is also part of that. Uh, and to your point, it's very true because EAP is seen as being designed and structured and administered by the HR department. So even though you may have access to the counseling services that comes under EAP, many do not access it to not take advantage of that for fear of it going to the HR that may then affect their career progression because you might be deemed to be incompetent or not having the right abilities to be considered for promotion or another department and all. And hence, the issue that you raise is statistically bad because many of these large employers say that the counseling services under the EAP are relatively underutilized. And that also is a very clear show of the stigma that still exists within the workplace. So what some of these employers, and I have done it, so let me start with my own experience with Harsh Diva. So what I did was for me to work in an arrangement with a external counseling agency where the employees can claim the cost of it, but also work with the external counseling agency to give us kind of a better rate because it's separate. Ma, and this is actually the common players within the mental health sector that looks at counseling. And particularly, they're very good with youth counseling. It's called Shan Yo. So I worked a deal with Shan Yo Counseling. 
And then no report back, there's nothing to come back from the counseling center, but we pay for the staff to have that access. And so that's one example. And I see a lot more employers also trying to do that. So that is an external party, no feedback whatsoever to the company. It's purely unconditional service that's been given. So there's no feedback and all of that. I mean, it doesn't mean that the company doesn't do some survey to ask how you're doing and anonymize it and all of that. But when it comes to counseling, they don't need the counseling partner to feedback any information and to make that very clear to the employees. So that's one way. The other way is a tougher way, but I think it's a more sustainable way is for leaders themselves to speak of using the internal counseling services. The idea there is that if leaders themselves are coming forward to share their own mental health challenges, that they need also counseling help. Then I think it starts to create a space, not just of trust, but of safety, of assurance, that it doesn't mean that you're not going to be considered for career opportunities just because you are going to seek counseling help. If you can get more leaders to come forward, do it, then that really helps to create a whole new way of looking at counseling services. So counseling services will not be seen as, oh, for the people who are sick. Counseling services would be for people who just need support for that period of their life, for that moment. And then over time, we are going to say that having mental health challenge is very contextual, is very circumstantial. It's not necessarily, depending on the mental health continuum you are in, is not permanent. And even those who have gone into a more severe state doesn't mean there's no recovery. So that's really important. That It's not like you stay in one point in the mental health continuum. So when I say mental health continuum, if you can imagine, you could have a continuum where you can have poor and good, where mental health is concerned. And constantly moving along this continuum, just before a big exam or project, I think you will come closer to the poor side. If you have lost someone, yeah, it's very natural to come to the poor side of it. When you got a promotion, when you got distinction, you go towards more of the good side. So actually, we are navigating this continuum the whole time. But when we are nearer to the poor side and we don't do something about it, we don't seek help or seek support for different reasons, then you don't get moved back to the good side. You stay there, right? Even if you move a bit, you're moving a little bit. And so the next time you have another event, you continue to move in the poor side. Over time, you stay only in the poor side of the continuum. And then sometimes that makes you need clinical help, medications and stuff. And that's fine. That could help you get back to the better side, the good side. So I think that's why help seeking is important. There's this idea that mental health is not a permanent state they're always in, but it's always fluctuating and you're moving between the stages. I feel like some people actually don't know how to identify that they are in that region of I'm not feeling so good nowadays. I understand that there's also some tools that are out there, like the I Work Health Assessment Tool. Not sure if you've heard about it. Yes, of course. It is an online self-administered psychosocial health assessment for companies and their employees. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that might be useful? I think it is as a baseline. Don't look at this as a screening test. I would like to pick up where you first started before you asked the question and introducing iWork Health. I know iWork Health very well as created by MOM, so it's a national effort. Let me share a little bit of some of the warning signs and I hope that that's helpful. There are many, many out there if you go do a search, but I think there are five based on my own personal experience, my experience also as a coach and as a mentor. One warning sign is long-lasting sadness or irritability. 
and I mean long lasting. If it's short term triggered and you only have it once in a very long while, then that's not. But I'm talking about long lasting sadness or irritability. Extremely high and low moods, excessive fear, worry or anxiety. Again, the operative word here is excessive. Some level of fear and worry and anxiety are very important. It's part of how we have evolved as a human species. But don't be looking for no fear, no worry, no anxiety, unless you're a cyborg, right? But we're talking about excessive social withdrawal. And this is something that has exacerbated with COVID. But social withdrawal, when you don't want to be, this is always a little bit more of a challenge with introverts. But I think if there's even more of a social withdrawal, even for introverts compared to before, then that's something to be mindful of. I think the fifth one is very easy to note, and I think most of us tend to overlook it, and that is dramatic changes in your sleeping and eating habits. This is very physical, but we don't pay attention. And again, I mean dramatic. Now, again, it's not to say that these five are exhaustive, but I think these five are very helpful warning signs. I also want to say that having said all of this doesn't mean that if you have any one of these means you're dealing with a mental health challenge that you should be overly concerned about. But at least when you feel this way, you are going to ask yourself, you're going to at least take a step back. Mental health challenges and conditions are not diagnosed so linearly. It's always a cluster of symptoms. So if you're really not sure, always seek help. But I would say that if we pay attention to this five, I think it's very helpful, not just for yourself, but also for your loved ones and your friends. Coming back to your eye work health question, I think is very helpful because it has been designed with mental health expert input and also people who are workplace well-being experts as well. And so it's very helpful as a baseline of understanding where you are. But then it's up to the organization. You can see the mental health of the organization as well. And that allows employers, particularly the leaders and HR directors, to be able to be more informed in the way they design policies and programs to support their employees. Because unless you know you have a pulse check, you will be just making assumptions. So I think having tools that I will help is always useful, but be very mindful in the communication of it, that this is not a mental health screening. So that you don't have people who, first of all, are worried about doing it because they don't know what's going to come out. But also when what comes out to them, they might take it as, oh my goodness, this is it, I'm this, I'm that. But to just see that this is actually a baseline check is not a diagnostic tool. But it's definitely helpful. At WorkWell leaders, just to let you in in a bit of secret, we are already in discussion with MOM to make sure that we will work together so that we can then look at using iWork Health as a more of a consistent baseline tool for all employers to use across Singapore so that we also start to have a bit of a sense of the national data as well. And that helps to craft national policies relating to workplace mental health strategies. Thanks so much, Anthea, for sharing with us some steps that we can take and understanding what tools are available for us to use. Looking to the future, what are some characteristics that you feel a healthy workplace should have? You earlier mentioned one of the considerations or characteristics should be this idea of and culture of implicit trust. Yes, I have been saying this a lot, but I'll say this again. My vision, and I think all of us have a part to play in this, I think we must boldly dream and envision a future where workplaces where we spend, as you said, half of our waking hours in as a place where we are realizing our potential, where we are stimulated, where we are contributing. And because of that, we are getting our source of social worth and self-esteem and a positive source of mental well-being because of that from 
that's my vision. I know it's bold, but I don't think it's impossible at all. And then when we have the kind of vision, and of course that vision includes having a workplace where employees come and feel that they'll be trusted. And this is basically backed by research already. Employees need, according to a very extensive Gallup study of 10,000 or more employees across the world, employees' needs can be broken down into four broad areas. One is trust. Trust translates to psychological safety. When you have a strong psychologically safe climate, then you open up space for people to come forward to share challenges. And so you can encourage help seeking, but you also can open up space and understand more of how to support our employees to be able to realize their potential and doing so translate to peak performance for the organization. The next need is compassion. I think compassion, we've talked a lot today about how we are not employees, we're not tools, we are not robots, we're not resources. First and foremost, we are humans. Employee is just a way of calling our role when we are in that workplace, but we are fundamentally human. And because we're humans, we definitely need empathy and compassion. Because we are humans, we will have challenges. So the compassion is really important. The third need, and I think this is an important one because not many people would see that, is stability. Because our lives outside of work are usually hard to predict because there are relationships and there are challenges, whether the challenges with your parents, with your grandparents, with your relationships, with your children, and all of that. But if there is a stability that can be had at the workplace, then that really does translate into a strong sense of belonging within that workplace. And it also provides a huge positive source of mental well-being because everything else can be quite flat in our lives outside. The last need is hope. I don't mean the fuzzy kind of hope that we're talking about. I think it speaks of aspiration. But earlier about as a young working adult, you go in wanting to contribute, wanting to be making a meaningful impact, whether it's at the workplace and better if it's also on society through the work you do. And that hope is very fundamental to our existence as human beings. We want to aspire to be more useful as a member of society. We want to be useful at work. Want to be useful in our roles as father, mother. Workplace should inspire that hope. And that usually will get translated to how do you provide opportunity? How do you create conditions for employees to feel that they can be creative, that they can realize their purpose, they can realize their dreams of being that kind of human that they want? It sounds like a big ask, but it's not. It's very doable. It's very pragmatic when you break it down into how do you create a trust-based work culture? How do you be more empathetic as managers and leaders? How do you create more stability? That usually comes from clear communication, clear roles. That's stability because you know exactly what you're supposed to do. How do you inspire hope? Give opportunities. Let employees have opportunities to do something more than what you ask them to do in their role and what they're paid for. Maybe you are taking on a project that tries to solve the world problem. And so that is hope. That's my vision for all workplaces. I think that's very inspiring for all of us. As you mentioned, we need to dare to dream of this kind of angle so that we can work towards it. At least there's something that we're working towards. If I may add, because I know a lot of you listening in are young and some of you may already be working adults, but all of you will at some point be working. I would say that don't be disheartened. Very often, because you're young, you feel like you have no power to make a change. You may not immediately have the power to change your structures and maybe even certain policies, but you have in you the power to give feedback. 
to share some of your experiences and take the opportunity to look at where are the trusted places you can share some of this and come from a place of not just wanting to share that back or to make that observation for yourself, but see it as for a larger context of whether it's for the team, whether it's for the organization. And I think when we come from that place, managers can see that. Yes, you probably sometimes hit many roadblocks, but never stop believing that you cannot immediately change, but you can plant the seed and be that person to plant the seed. And you may not benefit, unfortunately, from your feedback or from even raising something you've observed that you like to see change. But don't be disheartened because you are planting a seed. And maybe a few years down the road, a young person like you joining may not then have to go through the challenges that you've gone through because you planted the seed before him or her. Thank you. That was really very heartening. And I would love to end it on this note, but I realized that I forgot to ask a question that we will probably cut it earlier on. The question is, earlier you mentioned how the company can have a structure so that we can have a better workplace environment. On the other hand, I also wanted to know what are some red flags that you feel that as an employee, if we see it, it's something that we should voice up. For example, threatening to cut pay or withholding salaries. Yeah, my own experience, because I was a banker, and this is obviously a long time ago. So it's slightly a different time, a different Singapore. Being a female leader and who was doing really well, there was certainly a lot of pressure to behave like a boy. And I'll give this example. In what I was doing as a corporate banker, there was this need to go out and have drinks with clients. And I remember that one of my fellow female colleagues, she was also doing the same role as me. Thankfully, I could drink and I was quite proud of it. But now looking back, I felt like, why did I have to be like the boys to be feeling like I could do the job well but my poor female colleague couldn't and she was so sick uh, one time going out with her clients and I felt that, that was so dangerous and I think this is where now thinking back I realized first of all I shouldn't have to be able to drink to be seen as a good corporate banker and neither should she put herself at risk that way when she didn't drink I use this personal example because obviously I was very young. That was my first job, which will be a lot like some of you who are listening in or some of you who will be joining the workforce. I just feel that it's really important that we never, never put ourselves in harm's way, no matter how much we want to prove ourselves. So what are the red flags? The first red flag would be anything that's putting yourself in harm's way or making you feel uncomfortable. And I would, to the young women out there, but actually to all of you, because it's not just women who get harassed. I'm not just talking about sexual harassment. I'm talking about anything that you feel is going to either put you at worst or that is not sitting well with you. And then check on yourself. Are you feeling that way because there is a sense of self-entitlement? Or generally, it doesn't sit well with you because there is a certain common sense, certain moral narrative that you are assessing this situation? Then I do think there's a need to raise it. And again, raise it with someone you think will listen to you. Trust yourself. You are your best judge. And check with people you trust. So you first judge for yourself and then check with people you trust, whether it's at the workplace or even in your own social support so that you are able to also get other views. But I would encourage all of us to always remember that we have the agency. All right, we've come to the end of the discussion. Thanks so much for your sharing. Before we conclude, it's time for some rapid fire questions. Every episode, we ask three questions related to the health to the guests for them to share some last bits of wisdom on health. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the first question is, in one line, what does health mean to you? Well, health is total health for me because I believe there is no health without mental health. Definitely. The second question is, what is one bad health habit that you want to get rid of? 
under eating. And that's not from dieting, but it's from just feeling like it's a bit of a chore to have to cook for myself. All right, then the last question is, what is one health habit that you swear by? Oh, yes, definitely meditation. Me time is another way to put it. All right, then. Thank you so much for sharing with us your insights today and generally the conversation. It was so pleasant. Thank you, Justine. Thank you for being so kind to me and not giving too many difficult questions for me. It was truly a pleasure to speak to you, Anthea. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. I think it's really inspiring that Anthea is working with leaders and doing so much to pave the way to reimagine the workplace environment and make it a reality. I certainly hope that I'll be able to work in an inclusive environment where employees and employers have this culture of trust and compassion for each other. I think normally when we're at work, we fall into this mindset that it is all just about the work and what we can contribute to the company. But it should also be a place where you feel safe and have the confidence to voice out when you're feeling uncomfortable. On top of that, I do hope to make it a habit to do regular check-ins on myself against the warning signs and to see where I lie on the mental health continuum. After all, there is no health without mental health. If you want to find out more about the resources on how you can nurture a healthy workplace environment or join the conversation, follow us at our social media platforms at Heart to Health Talk. That's at Heart to Health Talk for additional resources and nuggets of wisdom can be found. Hope to catch you in our next episode. Bye!